Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Ladies and gentlemen, a note on today's Warner Archive Collection podcast, you'll be hearing references to two films, Kid Millions and Whoopi, starring Eddie Cantor, and the television series Children's Hospital, which unfortunately are not available for our new release of Tuesday, April 2nd. However, their release is forthcoming, and you can look for them on our warnerarchive.com website page for further details. Meanwhile, on with the show. The Fab Four we've got lined up for you in this week's Warner Archive Collection podcast are not the Beatles, but possibly even better than the Beatles. Is anything better than the Beatles? Bigger than McCartney. Maybe all of the scope of human history. Imagine. But not bigger than Imagine if we had a release that included one of the most popular current television series that just won an Emmy Award and a quartet of sizzling pre-code classics and two films starring old banjo eyes Eddie Cantor. Well, that's what we've got for you in this week's Warner Archive Collection new release podcast, starting out with 14 episodes yes. of the Emmy Award-winning television series, which can be seen on Adult Swim, Cartoon Network, Children's Hospital, starring Rob Corddry. <laughs> and that 14-episode season four release is coming to you from Warner Archive Collection. Then we turn back the clock to the early 30s <laughs> as sizzling pre-code gems come your way in another quartet of Forbidden Hollywood releases, Forbidden Hollywood Volume 6, containing Massacre, Mandalay, and other movies that don't begin with the letter <laughs> M. We have The Wet Parade and, most provocatively, Downstairs. Mm. And last but certainly not least, our first two Warner Archive Collection releases from Samuel Goldwyn Productions. We have Whoopi and Kid Millions, both starring Eddie Cantor. Old banjo eyes. So let's get the discussion underway and talk about the Emmy winner, the crown jewel of the new releases this week. The Ringo. The Ringo, <laughs> yeah. Children's Hospital. Now, this is season four that we're releasing to the Warner Archive, but the previous three releases are still available through home video. Uh, season one and season two are in one set, and season three is in another. And you can start in season four. It's oh, a, you know, you, you can start anywhere with, yeah. with Children's Hospital. This, this show, you know, do you watch TV? Then you I, will enjoy the comedy of Children's Hospital. Have you ever seen a procedural, Dan? Yes, I have. This is a whole new way to the, proceed the, with the procedural. <laughs> now, now, for people that might not they be might familiar not with Children's Hospital because it's on at midnight. Uh, Thursdays. Thursdays, Thursdays at midnight. And Adults it's about a country. guy named Children. Yes, it's not a children's <laughs> hospital. It's Children's, Arthur Children's Hospital, right. who we meet in season four briefly in a hallucinatory flashback, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> children's Hospital is a parody of anything on TV set in a hospital. Much like some series that we have on the Warner Archive Collection. It, it uh, began... Yes, very much so. And uh, Children's Medical Hospital began Center. life as a web series. Yes. One of the few web series to actually use oh, that oh, format yeah. to make the jump over into broadcast. And be renewed. And be renewed and renewed and renewed. I mean, the web series came out in 2008, and we're talking about this in 2013. And, and, and let me just say that these are 11-minute episodes. These are not yeah. hour no, long. No, no, this is like, you know, finely distilled spirits. And I think that they managed to put as much plot in oh, a one-hour episode. No, you of watch a it. It procedural. feels like you've watched a full. I mean, it's eleven minutes long, but you've got plot points that could easily overwhelm a regular network show, and it's all done with delight and sharp wit and well performance and you and know flashbacks and, and flashbacks <laughs> and I mean. It, it's the, the cleverness and the crassness of the show are are really a wonder. They are its hallmark when you yeah. care enough to send the very best. The first episode, just the title of it alone. <laughs> the boy the, with the pancakes. Pancakes that. tattoo. I mean, every every episode has a witty title, but that I mean, because the the girl with the dragon tattoo had just come out to theaters a couple of months before, so that was just like such a brilliant thing. We really should mention the cast aside from yes. Rob Corddry because Lake it's Bell. quite a cast. Lake Bell, Malin Ackerman, 
uh, Rob Hubel, Henry Winkler, and on occasion Megan Mullally. Yeah, and so she's in forty-three of the episodes. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah, and she plays uh, Chief. And then uh, my personal favorite, Brian Husky, who plays Chet, the paramedic. And then there's the voice of Michael Sarah. Oh yes, there's the PA announcer Sal. Yeah, and we have a special Sal episode in season four. Yeah, he doesn't really look like Michael Sarah, and yet he a friend does. Yeah. Uh, we don't want to spoil Now, that. I have to say, because each episode is its own unique comedy gem, uh, I should warn viewers, you're never going to look at a fish taco the same way again. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, in season four, which is your sort of favorite episode? Or episodes? I watched them in uh, two power sittings. And so, uh, but well, it's hard going, to stop watching once yeah, you've watched one. By going one after the other, I'm it's like, speedball which, which, which one was in which episode? I like the ones that break the format. Those mm-hmm. are kind of fun. There was Children's Hospital UK, British Hospital. Yeah, yes, that was that That's was fantastic because they just threw out the format and said, "What if what if this show was remade in the UK?" Right, which is and the show simultaneously a parody of. A spin-off, UK spin-offs of American shows and American spin-offs of British shows, right. as well as the conventions of British drama versus the conventions of American drama, packed into eleven minutes. Yes, and it was it was with, all there, and with a totally new cast. Yes, and I don't want to spoil it because just watching that episode when you see the performers come yeah. out is like, a, oh, e, uh. you really ha- have to let it roll. The one that that really shocked me, kind of was over the top even for Adult Swim. Was a year in the life. Yes. Oh, that one was so good. Was, well, in eleven was... minutes, they went over a year. That's right. I don't think that's going to make me pregnant. <laughs> I mean, that was really. I mean, it was. It was just. Like, but it, I mean, I love this show the way I love Robot Chicken. Uh, I mean, it's the same kind of irreverent, well, fast moving because they have a short running time. Right. They cram everything into... Well, Robot Chicken, it's incredible what they can fit into 11 yeah, minutes, yeah. too. And it's and they take you all over. You know, and this takes you all, all over. To, yeah. I mean, the, the one where it takes place in a year, it, it's very, it has a very simple wraparound mechanism is that Henry Winkler's character is given a year to make the hospital profitable. And, and the hospital just happens to have a helicopter. <laughs> yeah, it does. To know more, you'll have to watch yourself. <laughs> There's the great behind-the-scenes episode. That that one was actually my Speaking second favorite. Speaking of meta-meta. That, that broke. Right, the British, yeah. And then uh, a children's hospital. Oh, yes. And then, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, we do have a character death closing the season in the aptly yeah. named eulogy. Now, season five is starting up. Starting up. It's starting up, so we'll find out what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the last season ended in November. So I would say that this, this is, is probably the, yeah, the shortest, the freshest Warner Archive released in our four-year history. Yeah, it was like this right is hot off of the broadcast office, right off Thanksgiving mm-hmm. of just this year. Do you remember back then at Thanksgiving, Dan? But it's no Thanksgiving, but yeah. <laughs> no. And we should mention, as aside from the uh, regular cast and the recurring characters, there's a number. Every season has a number of oh, very some cool great guests. Guest stars, yes. Yeah. Uh, just like a procedural. Right. Including this season, John Hamm. Who, oh, yes. Who is... With a mustache. Who is super fantastic in his he's, brief guest. Well, there. because he he's also, as a, as a person in real life, he's it's funny. got a great sense of humor. Yes. And if you've seen him on SNL, you know that he's... And, and he's a, he's been on a bunch of different Comedy yeah. Central he's uh, just, specials. It, interesting that you should say that because this show was passed over by Comedy Central. Well... Much, uh, when, much to and much to the delight of Adult Swim when yeah. they got their hands on it, but it was offered to them and, and passed down. And you know, be, because it is it, uh, on such a you know in a crazy time on a channel where you wouldn't normally see this kind of stuff. It, and even though it's been on for so long, and it did win, it won the Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Special Class Short Form Live Action Entertainment. Right. That's only because they're scared to have it compete with the longer shows. I because it would win those too. Oh, oh, it would. But it if you haven't seen it, I mean, like, because we we've talked about a, a fair number of medical procedurals on this show, and if you are a fan of procedurals, you will find this funny because you, it, it is familiar, and yet it takes all of these conventions from like you know fifty years of television 
and upends them in a very fresh way. It's a, I mean, really going back to to medic in the early fifties. Yeah. that's really all. The yeah, whole it's all there, and then it's yeah. I mean, it's and it's really is like if you're a TV fan of our releases, it's a great palate cleanser. Because <laughs> and it will prime you for our soon to be forthcoming release Medical of Center? Dr. Kildare. Oh, okay. Dr. Kildare. Yeah. Which is probably, you know, one of the prime uh, sources of In its fact, humor. you could watch one of these. You could alternate. Watch a Kildare, then Medical watch one Center, of these. Then watch ER. Yeah. Yes, my, yes and, yeah. Put these and, and the other thing is if, if, if you're sure. a fan of inappropriately long staring and unexpected kissing, this is also the show for you. I think you can expect the unexpected in Children's Hospital. So season four, now available from the Warner Archive collection. Get yours today. And as Matt and Dan so wisely suggested, you're going to want to see all four seasons. So look for the seasons one through three. In fact, I would go so far as to say, you know, some people have consumed the show online as it originated or have watched it late at night in a altered or non-altered state of consciousness. But really... I believe the DVD is the best way to consume Children's Hospital. Plus, you get this wonderful silver thing that mm-hmm. you can you can use for pastries or whatever. I, I highly recommend it And if well. you tinker around with your player, you could actually pretend these are longer versions never before seen. <laughs> you just have them run <laughs> like, one way Like have an international player That's, set well, it to and pal. And then, of course, you do, you know, just... You just keep watching them because over they're like Because believe me, you, you missed something gonna, the first time yeah. you watched it. No, no, that's the uh, these are so packed. Repeat viewings are almost essential. And you know, by expecting the unexpected, why don't we go to the unexpected sixth collection of Forbidden Hollywood? Wait, that was unexpected that we were going to come out with a sixth volume. Uh, well, uh, uh, no, but the films are unexpected. Oh yes, I take it all. Back. They are unexpected in their ability to tantalize and delight. If you haven't seen them, and some of them haven't been really given their due, because not all of them were successful upon their original release, and some are quite controversial. So let's go through the releases as they were originally released theatrically. From 1932 and from MGM, we have Downstairs, starring and co-written by John Gilbert. We have The Wet Parade with an all-star cast. And then some. Uh, with Robert Young and... Uh, Razzmatazz! And Walter Houston <laughs> and Louis Stone, uh, directed by Victor Fleming. And then we skip to 1934 for a pair of truly provocative pre-code amazing films. Massacre, starring Richard Barthelmus and Ann Vorak. And, of course, Mandalay, which is considered by many to be the quintessential K. Francis pre-code. I'd put it right up there with uh, Jewel Robbery. But you can certainly wear clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Directed by Michael Curtiz uh, from 1934. So, uh, gentlemen, let the discussion begin. I guess Uh, we're starting downstairs. We're starting downstairs now. And working our way up. And if you're like me... I'll uh, put the echo on my voice. Uh, if you wish to cure the insanity that is people that worship Downton Abbey, and I'm not slamming Downton Abbey, I'm just slamming the class system, you should watch Downstairs, because that, my friends, yes. is what it was really like. And Downstairs co-stars Virginia Bruce, who was at the time married to John Gilbert when this movie was uh, made, and uh, Paul Lucas, who would later go on to win a Best Actor Academy Award for Watch on the Rhine in 1943. But he's a younger Paul Lucas, and this is also Paul Lucas before he became a Philo Van. And fans of Scandal Rags will keep an eye peeled for uh, Head of Hopper. Having seen this, and then earlier on, the uh, Fast Workers. Yeah. John Gilbert is owed... Such a giant apology it, by history. By everyone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. We're, we're, it's 80, 81 years since the release of Downstairs. And yet, news of this, we started taking pre-orders on this. You know, we record this 52 years before you <laughs> ever hear it. We record these way in advance. <laughs> the old but we, we, put, we put this uh, Forbidden Hollywood Volume 6, which is a four-film, four-disc set, may I add, we put this up for pre-order on our website last week, and someone who probably hasn't seen the film, I don't know, but someone was condemning it already for not being a good film. And in my opinion... No. It's fantastic! In my opinion, they haven't seen the film. No! They couldn't have seen because it. Because this film is revelatory, and John Gilbert himself 
not only co-wrote it as his star was plummeting, but this film barely got released. Oh, it's amazing. It's mature. It's wise. It's funny. It's touching. Well, it's very, he is such a scoundrel. Yeah, and he wrote it. He's phenomenal yeah. in the film. And yeah. the film is really, it deserves reappraisal. It's, it's 1932. That's the first thing that we have to... But this character that he's doing and his acting style is very Contemporary. modern. It's yeah. very yeah. Yeah. recognizable because a lot of a, a lot of people who are unfamiliar with early talkies and, and some of the pre-codes always talk about how the acting feels clunky or forced. But Well, yeah, and there's things like John Gilbert who here. was who was one of the, if not the major silent film stars. It is it is recognizable oh, yeah. part of that that silent glamour and patina and that style of acting shows when you see him in the talkies this is a guy who acting was as modern as contemporaneous as anything you see today and is unforced it's natural and and, the and there's nothing that, wrong with his voice no and no. that's the for no. for those listening who aren't familiar with with the legend his first talkie was called his glorious night and the dialogue was very stilted and the whole thing in Singing in the Rain where Gene Kelly's character goes, I love you, I love you all over again, that's supposedly a parody of Gilbert in His Glorious Night. And so they said, oh, John Gilbert has a squeaky high voice. He most certainly doesn't. Does not. He had a wonderful way with dialogue. There was no less of an actor he was just as good as gable or anybody else oh, so like, I, I was thinking like cary grant like i yeah. mean cary grant was was a few years away but i mean his adeptness his quickness his easy charm well, he, he he was much more subtle in his yeah. approach too yeah. which works extremely well in this scenario because in this film i think this is austria after world war one right and the monarchy, you know, has has uh, been displaced after that, and the royalty now is is starting to be torn apart. Things are changing, but this is a, a home where the servants are expected to be downstairs. But there's this place. great the, the scene where uh, Paul Lucas's character, Paul Lucas, plays Albert. The butler, and there's a, yes. a central love triangle between Albert, his new bride, who's the lady's maid, and the John Gilbert character, who is a, the chauffeur, who's the trickster, charmer, and, womanizer. And he's the most modern and of he's, servants. Yeah, and there's there's a great piece of dialogue where Albert lays out the deal, which yeah. is, yeah. you put your master's family ahead of everything, but if you get old and you get they'll sick, take care of you. they'll right. take care of you. That's the compact. And that's the compact, uh, ladies and gentlemen that it used to exist and certainly doesn't now because now we seem to live in a world where you're expected to give up everything for your overlords and in return you get nothing. Well, we we get a lovely paycheck every week, Dan. Well, that, yes, yes I, <laughs> I'm not talking about Oh, oh. No, but, well, about but this a is a sense of noblesse oblige. And and in this first scene, there's the the wedding and the chauffeur comes in and what's great is he carries himself so unlike the other servants that people think that they mistake him for being nobility. well i think he's lied to his carriage driver because the carriage driver calls him count oh that's right that's true so, yeah. so that's how I he almost, got like a free know, ride right now i i don't think this is too off the wall but in a way he kind of reminded me of having like a vulcan like sense of orders. I was, of course, bringing my Star Trek sensibility to everything. So how you can compare Albert Star Trek to Albert? But he was kind of like, you know, Spock right. or No, Tuvok, no, right? when Albert gets like, pissed, it's very much a Pond Far moment. Right. Yeah. No, no seriously. Yeah, it's right. like he's trying to say, hey, this is the order and right. this is yeah. what's logical. And Paul Lucas is so good. Like, he's playing a button-down guy, so he is stiff and awkward. But then when That's his passion is aroused, yeah. Yeah, because so, he's, like, unemotional and very much... You you don't really get to see it and almost you can feel there's a strain in the marital status right. between he and his now, wife and now what I'm trying did you to do figure out I was gone. I'm trying to figure out who Kirk is in the scenario. No, I don't think I don't think we have a Kirk. <laughs> no, I don't either. Maybe, I think there may maybe be a Virgi Bones, maybe you know. Virginia Bruce. <laughs> yeah, that could be it. Cuz <laughs> she has the speech away. about, you know, sometimes you do something to right? feel, which yeah. was very Kirkian. 
that was it was a yeah. it was a wonderful. But moment. I mean that that seems and like the a stretch. Slash and fans the would edition. love this interpretation. Oh boy! Yeah, <laughs> but but in in, oh all, in all seriousness, oh this my. is this is really when when there are pre-code festivals and when we were doing uh, Forbidden Hollywood in the VHS days, downstairs was not a consideration. It was just you know like John Gilbert's rediscovery is something that really has been championed by his his daughter, Leatrice. Uh, various other people have said, you know, these films were dismissed when they came out. You really need to look at them again. And Fast Workers, Dan, yeah, as no, you indicated, is another example. He really tried, by doing this film, he tried to redeem his career. And MGM did not support the film, and the film was forgotten. I've read reviews of the movie from when it opened. It was totally dismissed. He, and he's, I could see how a traditional audience, you know, when they watch this, he is, although he's charming, he is a cad. And he is he's not. not and, he's, and the film's uh, underlying. An I mean, the, the film's fact, underlying message is, is so sharply sophisticated because he is. He is the bad guy, but by his disruption into this family, he actually does a good thing. You wouldn't have yes. very many films today or even in the 70s where you'd have a Lothario who's having a relationship with a middle-aged yeah. woman yeah. at the same time. I mean, kind of like yeah. just like shampoo. No, I, I actually, when I was watching it, at one po- a, a few points, I, I thought of uh, Brimstone and Treacle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's deeply disturbing in the way he treats people like paper clips as disposable, and ultimately, and eyes their stockings for money. That's right, <laughs> and yeah, gives gives them, gives them fake advice. But lest we give too much of the film away, the film is not given a credited director, but Montebell actually was the director, and Montebell came to MGM after having been head of the East Coast production facility in Astoria, Queens at Paramount and is the credited director of The Coconuts with Marx oh, Brothers. Really? Wow. Ah. So to go from The Coconuts to Downstairs is quite a trip. Hey, Speaking of a, a trip. trip. <laughs> See trip. Let's go start let's, down let's go. south. Let's watch at, The Wet Parade. As we watch The Wet Parade, which is the first film directed by Victor Fleming at MGM. Again, not, not screen credited, but acknowledged as a Victor Fleming production. Now, and now for your fans of Victor Fleming, particularly his work in some small film about wind and things being missing. And uh, that movie with the ruby slippers. The, yeah, that, yeah. That uh, picture. Yes, the wet parade Sagan. has all the hallmarks of a Victor Fleming picture because this is epic. This movie is now, three films in one. Th- we could do a whole podcast just about the wet. Yeah. And, and this is out of all these... The other three films, they all have a brisk running time. Right. And this one is surprising, uh, given its time. Because it's three films in one. Yeah, it's long. It is. It, it really is. is. It is. It really is. I mean, people want to talk about, like, three acts. This is three films. I mean, they're all tied together, but this is like watching a mini-miniseries. Now, the overarching theme here, and, and in 1932... John Barleycorn must die. People were starting to question prohibition. This is the history of prohibition as told through the experiences of two young lovers. And based on uh, a a, a, a best-selling book by Upton Sinclair. And the film was and the book was and remains controversial and uh, highly debated. And if you've ever wondered about the actual history of prohibition, you get it all it's, in this. It's here. Yeah. Volstead it, Act. And what I liked about this film was it showed, as Hollywood did later, and you know, so many films dealt with the ravages of alcoholism, Stars Born and Lost Weekend, Days of Wine and Roses, what, you know, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? So many films deal with the effects of alcohol. But this film shows you that prohibition, alcohol was terrible, but so was prohibition. The prohibition, yeah. So it didn't the, really the, take sides. The, the, the cure made the problem work. Right. And, and the other thing people got to understand is, you know, and you can, there's, there's a number of very good books on this very subject is alcohol consumption in the United States after the Civil War leading up to prohibition was actually quite astounding compared to today. It really was a giant problem. And you could see how it wrecked people's lives. And, you know, we, I mean, and especially after those later films, which you mentioned, 
uh, that was when these things kind of came back into the national consciousness. But maybe one of the reasons why it had sort of disappeared from the conversation is that, generally speaking, prohibition was seen in society as not working. It didn't work. Right. If you look at films from the 20s and the and the pre Ending of prohibition, their normal scenes and speakeasies is just right. a part of yeah, life. Yeah, because because for forbidden Hollywood, it's very strange to see a and it does it has an it, it may not be for prohibition, but it is anti-alcohol. Yes, yes. This is an anti-alcohol film through and through, and in and, and the abuse. And, and, that, and it's it's really like a giant pro-family film, although the yeah. pro-family people would have condemned this movie. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and and right. then you also have, so let's set okay. up the story. You've got a, a family down south, the Chilcoats. We, we, we have an antebellum tragedy beginning it off. Then we, with which is the Chilcoats, which is the... Lewis Stone. And uh, you, Lewis Stone and uh, Dorothy Jordan. Dorothy Jordan is Dorothy his Jordan. daughter. And Neil Hamilton. Commissioner <laughs> Gordon. And Neil Hamilton's particularly really great He's in this really film. He's really great in this film. Uh, and then we move into a sort of gritty urban drama. He goes to New York. And, and that's where we meet the Robert Young character and his family. Walter Houston and his mother's played by Aunt M, Clara Blandick. And then we get a, an urban domestic drama. Oh, yeah. And then we move into the third act <laughs> where, where, where Jimmy Durante <laughs> plays the Sean Connery Untouchables character he's, he's a federal in a agent. rip-roaring procedural about the war between the gangsters and the bootleggers. And I mean, the federal agents and the not bootleggers. Not your usual Jimmy Durante role <laughs> no. because he actually um, has some serious Yes, moments. he does. He, not too much and now, I don't what an entrance. I mean, I want to sell the film here. But, what an entrance. But he has quite an exit as well. Oh, it's... it's yeah. yeah. Do we, we I, I don't want to spoil anything. But I just want to say Young. that it is but, so Jimmy Durante. Oh, yeah. Robert, Ro- this is one of Robert Young's earliest uh, My joke was, was Robert was quite young. Yes, he was. <laughs> it's a great joke. I think you should say it again. <laughs> Robert was quite young. But he was... This is one of his earliest appearances. He, he was extraordinarily young in this film and gave a, a terrific performance. The, the scene, um, not to give plot points away, but the scene where he's telling the uh, tenants of his hotel that the lease is up, such yeah. a great performance. And there, there's a, a horrific turn of events uh, toward the middle of the film that uh, we won't give away. But Between that, each of the stories. But wait, it, we're forgetting. Wait. We're forgetting. Wait, what are we forgetting? Myrna Loy. Oh, yeah, Myrna well, Loy. She's yeah. in the last yeah. part of the picture. Yeah, yeah. But boy, <laughs> she's the, she's, she's very mean. there. Yes, this is this is Myrna Lloyd before she became a Metro contract player. So she this is before Thirteen Women. Uh-huh. So she was working at various studios and small parts, and she makes a very significant impression mm-hmm. and well, quite gorgeous. And between each of these big set pieces is a tragedy, right? That right. That, that drives the action. Like it, you know, if this were. Multi-episode television. That's why I called it a mini mini series. Yeah, it is a mini mini series, and and it does not ever make me want to go back in time and get bathtub gin, or go to a speakeasy for or that a, a paint although store. I would like to see one of those floor shows. Uh, the floor show, are yeah, pretty they good. did, they, yeah, the, they, they, but they showed all sides of the equation, and that's the thing that's that's interesting about this film. So. It's, then we go from okay. Culver City yes. to a, a, a municipality known by us as our home, away from home, Burbank, California. Boy Bank. The Warner Brothers Studios. And we have Massacre and Mandalay. So which should we talk about first? They both came well, out in 34. They did. Let's let's start with Mandalay because Massacre goes nicely into the next Oh, episode. good point. I oh, love that. A natural born segue. Foreshadow. Yeah. Right, right, right you are, Matthew. Yes. Mandalay, what I really want to talk about Mandalay I'm not going to because even to mention what a cool thing it is would be to spoil too much. Are you speaking of Kay Francis's towel? No. Kay Francis is a woman of ill repute who has to... Forced into even iller reputers. Yes, as the the movie gets more Mandalayan. Right. And this is directed by stalwart 
Warner veteran Michael Curtiz at his finest and co-stars Ricardo Cortez in a, a really impressive performance. I love Ricardo Cortez when he's not the nice guy. Right. Oh, yeah. he's despicable. Yeah. But isn't that when we say he gets Cortezy? Yes. <laughs> it's true. I mean, in this film and then recently we watched West of Shanghai yeah. where he's also Cortezy. Oh, yeah. so Cortezy. This seems exactly like the kind of movie that would not be made six months later. Well, and in, uh, in I, effect, I think you are probably, correct. I think it squeaked through, right? It, 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 it not only squeaked through, but two years afterward, Warner Brothers applied to re-release the film, yeah, really. knowing they would have to cut it because Oof. a lot of pre-code films were cut for reissue. Right. And we bear the pain of that because certain films no longer exist in their pre-code, non-edited form. Mandalay had so much in it that would have yeah, to be cut. The whole storyline. It would have been five <laughs> minutes. The, the, the production code office said, you cannot re-release this film. So you get it in its original form. So It would have been like an episode of Children's well, Hospital. Yes. <laughs> Kay Francis' film that we've talked about on the podcast because we had a, a letter come in from a listener. Yes. And that reminds us, folks... Please send us letters. These these boys need their letters. Hear that? That's the sound of no letter opening. But There's we'll, no get, we'll get to that. We'll that get to that, that later. Right. But a letter today. writer wrote and asked about Dr. Monica with Kay Francis, mm -hmm. and that is only distributed in its postcode edited form, uh -huh. which is less than an hour because there were issues in the film that dealt with abortion. Abortion. So even that film was able to be resuscitated in a shorter right. form for reissue after the code was implemented. There is so much in Mandalay that would have had to be cut out. I mean, just, that just like the K. Francis character is they would a, have had a to change the name to man. Yeah. She's yeah. a prostitute who's yeah. then abandoned at a brothel where she's forced to be a hostess. The number one hostess. Yes, the number one hostess. Who gets kicked. She's such a successful prostitute that they, she's kicked out of town. The British consulate kicked yeah. her out of town because she's such a good prostitute. <laughs> and then she blackmails her way into an escape plan that gets complicated by romance and return. And I really, there's it, such it, a, it this film, a cruise. this film has such a clever third act oh. plot. Oh. It's that so I don't want to describe it because you know the end of the film folds back into the middle of the film yeah, yeah. and it's so good. The but what what uh, I would say to that well, it is, gets super Cortese. Yeah. What I would say to that is the last shot oh, of so, Jewel uh, Robbery. Yeah. Where Kay Francis puts her fingers up to her mouth like going shh. So I'd say about the end of Mandalay, shh. Let let the viewer say, discover. And much like the last shot of Jewel Robbery. Kay Francis's face when yes. we last see her. Oh boy. Nice performance. Says all, I mean, it really like. And, and all of this is packed into a neat 65 minutes of running. And a number of awesome clothes changes. Uh, changes there, there of clothes. Are, there are. Is and, there a term of art for that? Well, and, and you know, but this one in the 65 minutes, it, it, it's got three yep. little films in it as well. well it, and, and the Warner way was tell the stories as efficiently as possible. And it really, it really bangs it out. You are left with a feeling at the end that you don't get until like more modern, probably until like the noir films. Even, no, then, like, even then, even then, even then, even then, not noir wishes it could have had an ending like there, this. There are certain there's a couple pre-code films, and there's some Billy Wilder films come to mind that shock. Yeah, and in their frankness, certainly Babyface is probably yeah. in its in its unedited Un yeah. form is is at the top of the list. But I'd say Mandalay is very close to the now, top in its own right. And we should mention some of the other cast. Uh, Lyle Talbot plays the other romantic interest. Uh, Reginald Owen plays the Reginald Owen. There's rumors that there are deleted Shirley Temple scenes. I've never that, really... That was listed on IMDb. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know about like, that. Seems yeah, like you, there wouldn't be a place where, in the film for we her. Where? Well, she was... I think she had the, all the songs that were cut out. <clears throat> you mean songs like... On the good ship Mandalay. There you go. And I have to mention this because this is actually a segue to the next film, Warner Oland. Oh, yes. Which is it. Who is not a Warner brother, by the way. Yes. Not, now, not now, Warner Oland, who, who is perhaps best known for playing... Charlie Chan. And our next film, Massacre, has Sidney Toller, who is probably best known for playing... Charlie Chan. So we got a Chan to a Chan. You yeah. might even call it 
Chan Clan. I was hoping you'd whisper it. This week, there are, uh, you know, we're going to be getting into the interestingly cast racial characters. Richard (laughs) Barthelmus, like John Gilbert, was a huge star on the silent screen and uh, remained pretty much at the top of his game in the early sound era while Gilbert's star was on the descent. And Prior to Massacre, Barthelmus had starred in what I think is possibly his greatest work, Heroes for Sale, William Wellman's film, which I urge everyone to go see, which is in an earlier Forbidden Hollywood collection. But here he plays Joe Thunderhorse, who is, would you say, a lapsed Indian? A lapsed Native American? The, he's I mean, been civilized, he's been, according he, well, to the... No, but he's... He, he left the reservation. Yeah, he's an assimilationist. I mean, he... You're right. Yeah. He's I, moved to Chicago. He's got a high-class girlfriend, beautiful Claire Dodd. Massacre, I think anyone who hasn't seen this film, in terms of, like, like a great example of pre-code... Right, because they're dealing with how the government... Terribly yes. mistreated Native Americans and the whole setup. And you won't see Indians portrayed in this light in a major no, Hollywood release no. for decades. No, my, s- not, 70s, 60s. Not, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, Little yeah. Big Man yeah. and, and Man Called Horse and yeah. films like that. And so the basic setup is Barthelmus plays a Sioux who has assimilated into white society, but he makes his but, living right. playing a dime store Indian version of an Indian and a traveling Wild West show. Yeah, like in a Buffalo Bill show, currently performing at the Chicago World's Fair or Chicago Expo. And he gets called back to his home reservation because his father is ill. And And he's left years ago. Yeah, and the film is his journey back into his identity and his heritage. Right. Because and, because and, he's playing a parody of an Indian at this point, the, or the yeah. or the American Indian that the rest of America expects and, and sees in the movies. I think one of the things that is so uncomfortable uh, in the early part of the film is the whole way he's objectified uh, by Claire Dodd's character, well, the, yeah, is, and yet yeah. he doesn't care. He wants to work it for all it's worth. Well, yes. She's rich. Yes, she's no, beautiful. She, yes, she's into the forbidden savage love. Right. A- and she has a, a, a collection. She shows him her collection she, she of Native a, American she artifacts. She has a guest bedroom built for him. Right. With, yeah. And then she she's By holding, the way, no bra. <laughs> well, there you go. That that was her assimilating into mm-hmm. American culture. Mm-hmm. But she she confronts him with some of these artifacts, and he's like, he has I don't no know idea what, these what are. they are. Right? I don't know it. You know, but but again, this is you know but identity it, politics. Well, I mean, and it's like, and it is path from ignorance to enlightenment, and it's right. not an easy path. But don't get me wrong, people. This is also a rip roaring actioner. Oh yeah, every everything but the hounds. Yeah, and maybe even hounds. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then he takes his modern car that says, like, "I love the car." Chief on the side, yes, and his African American. Servant Sam, played, played by, by Clarence, Clarence Muse, Muse, who's got great lines in this, and he's also in the Wet Parade. Yep, he's terrific in that as well. And although you know, there, there's definitely an uncomfortable moment with another black performer in this film, in terms of modern sensibilities. The the Sam character is quite well treated because again they're playing up all the differences with the cultures right and, and they're both outsiders and the, and the race his yeah. character in this film reminded me of his character in the mind reader mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is very much similarity mm-hmm. of being part of the gang with your friend Alan Jenkins and uh, Warren William in the mind reader it's the same kind of camaraderie let's work it yeah. let's make it for all it's worth and then when yeah. the and he's there for a lighter touch so when the film gets right. very serious <laughs> yes. he's absent and then they bring him back when we need a little a little comedy and so uh when they pull up to the indian reservation now this part of the film is it's very bleak i mean yes. because the condition of the american indian at this point native americans is at really at a low, low point, and they very frankly show how exploited they were at the hands of the people who were put uh, the Bureau of, uh, what was it, Land Management or Indian Management? Bureau of Indian, Indian Affairs. Indian Affairs, they call it. Indian yeah. Affairs. 
who were basically ruthlessly exploiting them. And yeah. they also yeah. show that there's a, there's someone in Washington who is right. advocating well, for them right. in a positive well, way. This so is not... still this is still a a early <laughs> Roosevelt administration Warner say. Brothers. There's there's a reason there's a you know there's a scene when uh, Richard Barthelmus character go Joe Thunderhorse goes to Washington and we clearly see an NRA poster. Right. And that's, and that's not, not National a, Rifle Association. That's the National Recovery Act. And and <laughs> the the people in Washington are good, and the yes. people back on the reservation that are so old, old government versus are new government. hiding evil. Yeah, w- one of the interesting. And they are bad, but they have one hot secretary. Well, it's played Washington. by and who is really great in the film too. She's terrific. She's pl- also playing a Native American yeah. who has been college educated, but she stayed. She was the other side. She, she stayed. She stayed. They both went, went to yeah. the institute. They both got educated. Barthelmus' character left the reservation behind and hasn't been back in 13 years where she'd returned to try to help her people. But in her way, her way of helping, she felt she was helping the best she could, but her way wasn't effective really either. Right. And so together... She was trying to change And she was like, you can't make changes here. At first you think he's just going to wuss out because at the beginning of the film, he's only in it for himself. And he ultimately, as Barthelmus did going back to his... Heroic Griffith roles. I mean, he's a hero, and yeah. he was. It's, uh, but it's part of the, the film is rather horrific in what happens to oh. his baby sister. Oh. Yes, I mean, even today, I was like, "What?" <laughs> no, it's it's pretty pretty savage yeah. in, we'll call in it the true frank. sense of, yeah. of the word and and deeply disturbing yeah. as it should be uh, now, almost eighty years later. Now. What I noticed on, on on this disc for Massacre, we have a trailer on it. I said to Dan, you have to watch the trailer for Massacre because how was this advertised? How was this marketed to an audience in 1934? We've been talking about it, how we interpret it. The trailer <laughs> perpetrates the horror that the film is yes. trying to attack. Yes. They turn it into a romantic movie. Can a white woman yes. love a savage Indian? Yes. Tell me, Claire Dodd. Can yeah. a white woman really love a savage? And this was watch not, massacre and find out. This was not inordinate of the time. There they is. would often shoot special footage for trailers, and this was an example of one of those kind of things. No, and they're definitely like trying to up the commercial ante by pushing the salacious level. And there is a bit of that in the film too. I mean, there's, it's a oh, very yeah. there's a very frank clo- scene with Claire Dodd and Richard Barthelmus, but you know, that's <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the they is, tried to make it yeah. sort of a they marketed it a little bit as a romantic triangle. Yeah, which yeah, it's not. It is not. But at all. but it does have and at the end they're like he has to save the Indians before it's a massacre. But it's very contextually interesting now, to see because now, uh, this is a it's an incendiary film. No, uh, I don't want to give anything away. But in terms of the film's end, do we know if there was a reshoots or changes? Because it seemed like the film could have gone either way. And I'm wondering if we know anything about... I don't know anything about any yeah. changes. Okay. I think it was always intended to be what it is. Okay. It felt to me like it was intended because it was pretty bleak. It was, it was pretty bleak, but you and, know me. I, I like to go for the super data. Yeah, yeah no, I and, think and, that this... They set that ending up well throughout the film. If you if you look at the Warner Brothers films of the period, they were not afraid for darkness and bleakness. You know, the end of I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang right, I mean, yeah. is the probably the, the speaking of darkness example. Yes. But even even heroes for sale, you, you can't change and, the system. And you, they did, you have to accept it. You know, and these like the previously mentioned film. You know, they were hoping that these films could help initiate change at a higher level in the government. Which well, and that you know, is do, do that, that is what distinguishes. Not to be uh, tooting our own horn. This is long before any of us were born, no less worked here, but. This was the studio that was socially minded as opposed to the other studios that were more into not necessarily taking a political position, but the Warner Brothers themselves were down in the trenches. They were the No, the I, no I mean, it's really, it's like, it's always the refreshing thing about this period of Warner Brothers films is that they're not afraid to be political. Right. That's speaking why, of political. <laughs> speaking of political and political correctness, it pretty much goes out the window in most films of that era. Yes. And, um, but melodically so. We're going to start off uh, the last part of this podcast by talking about two films 
that introduced the Samuel Goldwyn films to the Warner Archive collection. And Sam Goldwyn was an independent producer who went out independently in 1924, I guess, when his Goldwyn Pictures Company was seized in ownership by another company and Metro Pictures and Goldwyn Pictures were merged under Lowe's Incorporated and Louis B. Mayer was brought in as head of production and Metro Goldwyn Mayer was formed and Samuel Goldwyn had nothing to do with the company that bore his name. He's the G. He's the G of MGM and he never had any affiliation with it. He struck out on his own as an independent producer releasing through third parties and at the time of the next film that we're about to speak about, he released his films through United Artists Corporation. UA was set up as a distribution company for independent producers to distribute their works. And uh, so it was a good fit for Sam Goldwyn. And he was with UA for many years and then eventually moved his distribution to, to RKO. But he owned his films, he financed his films, he produced his films, and he only made three or four movies a year because he was very selective about the kind of films that he would make. And if you read, there's a wonderful biography about Sam Goldwyn called Goldwyn. It's written by A. Scott Berg and an equally phenomenal documentary adapted from his book by documentarian Peter Jones in conjunction with Scott Berg. And it's a a documentary about Goldwyn that had the full participation of the family and wasn't, uh, did not spare any truth of telling all dimensions of the man. It's fascinating personally and professionally. And he retained ownership of his films. And the Samuel Golden Family Trust, which is headed up by his son, Samuel Golden Jr., they own the films and have uh, licensed distribution rights to Warner Brothers for home video. And so Warner Home Video has released Guys and Dolls and Hans Christian Andersen on Blu-ray and some other films have come out on DVD. And now we at the Warner Archive Collection are starting our own activities with the Samuel Goldwyn Library. And we're starting off with two of the most successful films from the 1930s, both starring one of the first stars of Samuel Goldwyn Talkies. They were two big stars they had at the beginning of Talkies in Sam Goldwyn's productions. One of them was Ronald Coleman and the other was Edward Israel Iskowitz. That's right. <laughs> Eddie Cantor. Eddie Cantor. And if you want to learn more about him, we suggest that you purchase the Warner Archive collection release, The Eddie Cantor Story. And I want to say so, that... Wait, wait, I just have, I have a question. So so Warner Brothers made The Eddie Cantor Story? Of course. Later and about... In 1953, right, in released in early 1954. Of a Goldwyn star. Now, now Eddie, uh, he, was, he actually was in uh, movies at RKO in the 40s. He made okay. a movie at MGM in 1940 that we haven't released yet. And he also did a film at Fox. He moved around, but his early films, his early talkies were at Goldwyn, and he even did some silent films. One of his Broadway shows, Kid Boots, was made as a silent comedy at Paramount in 1926. Now, this (laughs) first film, Whoopi, was his first sound film. His first, this was Eddie Cantor's first, this film is, it's, first it's, talkie feature. It's full of firsts, I believe. So Eddie Cantor's first talkie feature. Was this Ziegfeld's first talkie? No. No. Okay. But still, it's Goldwyn, it's Ziegfeld, it's Eddie Cantor. It was Goldwyn's first musical. He had produced other talkies before this. Then there's an interesting gentleman behind the choreography. Very much film. so. Busby Berkeley? Indeed, indeed. And was this Busby's first film? Yes, indeed it was. Boy, that guy came out of the gate strong. And, you know, now I'm, I'm skipping ahead a tiny bit, but but that first big number is exactly Busby Berkeley. Like, yeah. it's unmistakable. Yeah. His style and, and is... Without question, he already had the overhead camera shots. Yeah. Everyone thinks it all began with 42nd Street in 1933 here at Warner Brothers. But really, when Berkeley first hit the scene, he hit the scene running and did his early On work horseback. at Goldwyn yeah. and uh, also a film at MGM called Flying High in 1931. The whole kind of geometric yeah. choreography the, started the kaleidoscope off, uh, of movement, out of the arms in the air. So uh, this film was made in early two-color Technicolor and for many years wasn't seen that way because the two-color Technicolor process was hard to restore, but it was back, I guess, in the 70s 
that the Goldwyn Company went back to the original two-color uh, negatives. Now, two-color, yeah. technicolor. What's that? Yeah, George, It's please. a red-green process. So it, uh, it's missing the blue. That's right. And uh, the three-color process was perfected by the Technicolor Corporation in 1932 for a Disney cartoon called Flowers and Trees. And initially, Walt Disney had the lock on the three-color Technicolor process. The two-color Technicolor process first came into being in the early 20s. And people were uncomfortable with it because it didn't look lifelike. And studios experimented with it. And when sound came in, there was a real rush to have color and sound. And had the depression not kicked things in, into the financial oh, hellhole. We would have gone full color there earlier. Was, yeah. There was 70 millimeter. TV, too. There was 70 millimeter. Yeah. Uh, uh, Vitascope was the Warner Brothers 70 millimeter process and was used on the 1930 version of Kismet, which is now lost. But uh, MGM, we talked about in the podcast, yeah. I think, the Billy the Kid with Johnny Mac Billy Brown King, right? shot in 70 millimeter. So the use of Technicolor was abundant here at Warner Brothers. And most of those two-color Technicolor films are now lost or only survive in black and white. But Goldwyn made the decision when he was going to make his first musical, it was going to be Technicolor, and partnered with Florence Ziegfeld, who had produced Whoopi on Broadway with Eddie Cantor, to move the show uh, in front of the movie cameras. And from what I've read, it, it, the show's relatively unchanged. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very similar to our Rio Rita with Wheeler and Woolsey, which was also a Ziegfeld stage transplant. Well, by adding the color and the Busby Berkeley numbers to it, it's it's very interesting because it's, it's very sound studio-y, and the it's very you know facing out on the prosemium style. Right, it's uh, very much the, the the camera is the audience. It is not cinematic, yeah. except for Busby's work. Yeah, which, <laughs> which, which, yeah, yeah, which stands out. But with the color, it is very unique when when you watch it because there's so much visually to it that it it does pop much more than other very early musicals, which are black and white and in the prosemium. You know, like like just facing very st- stagey. This this really seems to come more alive than you would expect for 1930. Now, Eddie Cantor was a huge star at the Ziegfeld Follies, which were reviews that Florence Ziegfeld produced, and Fanny Bryce came out of the Ziegfeld Follies, and Will Rogers came out of the Ziegfeld Follies. So many stars that had careers later uh, were big stage stars in the Ziegfeld Follies. And here you had Florence Ziegfeld producing a what I would call a book show, a show that had uh-huh. some semblance of story. And Eddie Cantor is recreating his stage presence. So it is uh, unique in that it preserves something of what a 1920s Broadway musical would be like in this 1930 motion picture. And yeah. We should mention the cinematographer because oh, he is a gentleman of some significance. And uh, and worked for Goldwyn quite often. Yes, which is Greg Toland. 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 <laughs> uh, most famous, of course, is the man that shot... Citizen and Kanye. And argued with Orson Welles while shooting Citizen Kanye. <laughs> yeah, I know, I, no deep focus here. But, but, but like you said, <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, yeah. I don't now, know. It, just to go about two-color Technicolor, they actually had... Because they didn't have that third primary color, it gave a strange look to yeah. everything that was filmed in the it, process. It gives it I, I, to a more modern audience. It might feel like early computerized coloring. It, it, uh, yeah, because, it has that look. Yeah, because it the, the, the Turner, the, the reds and the greens. As mess. much as I despise colorization, and I'm allowed to say that as an independent person. Um, <laughs> I often used to joke that the two-color, technicolor films that no longer survived in color could be colorized because the best with, colorization... With a clear yes. The best colorization could offer is to look like two-color, technicolor. I'd kickstart that. See, I like the two-color because it's very surreal. It like, is. Like, and, and they used, you know, they, uh, at this point, understood, because the technology had been around long enough, 
Like you get these, and it's, it's very stagey. Like this is a very stagey production, but you get these weird green cast skies in it, and like the I don't know, and it's like these pinks kind of pop. Now speaking of surreal, hot dogs have nothing to do with. Speaking it. of surreal, okay, <laughs> we should say something a little bit weird, like we kind of segue oh. from massacre into talking about oh, yes, Whoopi, yes. but we Why didn't you tell make... about the plot. Yeah, yeah. oh, well, for, I'm just gonna say Whoopi, gen- ladies and gentlemen. Then and now means the same thing. So yes. this show's title, Whoopi, is a clear indication of what life was like before the code. Because there was a making Whoopi, the, the the famous title song "Making Whoopi," which is all about innuendo. And there's a lot. If you look around, you can find some posters, vintage posters for Whoopi online, and you will see lots of naked women. Four but, or five. But this movie, if it but was, this movie if is this not movie bad. was run by the MPAA today, it would be rated G. Yes. So oh, yeah. it's not. It's so the not, plot, Matthew, briefly. Do not be afraid of this movie. Well, the plot has that kind of magical musical plot in that it runs at you very fast and then stops for song. We're out in but, the West. Right. We've got a Western sheriff and he's preparing to marry this uh, girl. But she is not in love with the sheriff. She's in love with a savage. A savage. He's part Indian. and uh, But that is an obstacle with the dad. So when the part Indian stops by the ranch to possibly interrupt the wedding, he's shot. And he's forced to come okay. off. Do you remember me saying briefly? I can't. I couldn't okay. help it. I I'll do it, it briefly. There's a young lady who's engaged to a sheriff who's secretly in love with a Native American. And she uses a hypochondriac played yes. by Eddie Cantor to escape. The two of them go on the run. There's a series of musical numbers. I eventually, just, I want to point out that Eddie Cantor plays a prototype Woody Allen hypochondriac. No, he plays here. Eddie Cantor. Yeah. yeah, he is. But I'm, for people who are yeah. not familiar... Because he is a Jewish character, and he is tricked into rescuing her because after he's rescued her, she tells him that they're coming to kill him, and that makes a hypochondriac. He's a neurotic. Yes. Speaking of neurotics, in the next film, Kid Millions, (laughs) he plays— He played the same character in every movie. Yes. I mean, I think that's the important thing, too. In this version of the character's life, he has a happy life with nothing, but he suddenly inherits $77 million. But in order to get the $77 million, he has to travel to Egypt alongside charlatans and chicaneries, and there's lots and lots Ethel of Merman. And yes. Ethel Merman. And speaking of Technicolor, Kid Millions, unlike Whoopi, has a three-strip Technicolor process in the just rather— Just the final just seven the finale. minutes. Yes, but it is quite astounding. And we don't like to give away the end of films, but the end... Free ice cream. Yeah. The Any movie that he, ends with free ice cream is a movie you want to see. Film. He just is like... His dream is free ice his cream. His dream is to give away free ice cream. He states it in a song before he inherits the money. He's with a bunch of kids and he wants to give them free ice cream. And it's not cream. an entendre. He wants to give away yeah, free ice cream. Literally and for, for fans of the R Gang comedies, Little Rascals... You get to see in in three strip Technicolor. You get to see Spanky and Stymie and a lot of the R Gang kids as the kids in in the musical number in the big finale musical number. Kid Million sports a wonderful score, and in the middle of the movie is a rather substantial production number that uh, features Eddie Cantor. Ethel Merman, Ann Southern, Anne one Southern. of her earliest films as Ann Southern and not under the name Harriet Lake, and George Murphy. But it also is one of the rare screen appearances of the Nicholas Brothers. And oh, yeah, the Nicholas oh, yeah, Brothers great, yeah, yeah. and Eddie Cantor if you like sing dancing. and dance together, and it's just spectacular. Now, the song is part of a big production number called I Want to Be a Minstrel Man. And the music to the song was written by Burton Lane. Now, if you listen to that song and you know movie musicals really well, you'll say, gee, I recognize that melody as something else. Well, your ears would not be deceiving you because 17 years later, Burton Lane reused the same melody as You're All the World to Me, the song that Fred Astaire sang as he danced up and around the ceiling in Royal Wedding. So with everybody's approval and permissions, Alan J. Lerner wrote new lyrics to that melody. And so the song that, you, if you've seen That's Entertainment and you've just heard the music, the music that Fred Astaire is dancing up and down the walls and ceiling from Royal Wedding is the same melody as I Want to Be a Minstrel Man from Kid Million. So there's a little bit of 
trivia that your ears are not deceiving you. But as a big Nicholas Brothers fan myself, I always find that they do Mandy by Irving Berlin in the middle of the minstrel sequence. And uh, looking at particularly Harold Nicholas, who was the younger brother, his interaction with Eddie Cantor is priceless. And they're just sensational together. It's really a highlight right in the middle of the movie. So Kid Millions with Finale in Technicolor and Whoopi in full two-color Technicolor, both from Samuel Goldwyn, both now available on DVD from the Warner Archive Collection and rounding out this week's quartet of new releases, which is really a lot more than four when you add in those episodes of Children's Hospital and the four Forbidden Hollywood films. A full season of, yes, full season there and then four films. It was an interesting mix this week. And I want to also mention that all four Forbidden Hollywood films have been remastered specifically for this release. They look good. Uh, For the first time in 20 to 25 years, they needed it. And uh, a lot of these were films that we couldn't remaster until recently. Downstairs was something we wanted to do many years ago. And uh, we didn't have the bucks, but without a Kickstarter campaign, we were able to afford it. And so (laughs) hallelujah for downstairs. That's the magic of technology. Next week, we will be back. Yeah, well, speaking of the magic of technology, there's this technology you might be familiar with. It's new. It's called letter writing. And it involves a piece of paper and a pen, pencil, crayon, or writing instrument of your choice. And you can write us here questions, which we will respond to live on the podcast and then send to you on a tape delay. But you have to put them in an envelope with a stamp and send them to Warner Archive Collection, B160-8, 3400 Riverside Drive, Burbank, California, 91522. And if you send a S-A-S-E, a self-addressed stamped envelope, we'll write you back. How's that? I mean, that's how desperate we are. Dan, do you want to make a plea of any kind? Well, perhaps there's some young parents out there and you're reading to your child at night and you're fond of the book Goodnight Moon. Uh-huh. Well, the author of Goodnight Moon also wrote a very wonderful story called Seven Little Postmen. So I think you should go out, read Seven Little Postmen, think on its lesson, and write us a letter. And remember that the postman always rings twice. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how that was going to work in with 13 women. <laughs> well, I wish we could go on talking like this, but now it's no. time to pay you back your life. Now, in the race for the 100... Oh, wait, 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 wait. I was having a deja vu moment. All right, we'll go back from that parallel universe and get back into our TARDIS and come back to this TARDIS? Podcast. You've said the magic word. Of course, ding, ding. it's the 50th anniversary. Ding, ding. Anyway, we want to thank you very much for listening to this Warner Archive Collection new release podcast. We hope you'll look for the next one. Meanwhile, I am George Feltenstein. I am Matt Patterson. Joe Thunderhorse. I thought you were going to say, I am the doctor. (laughs) Thanks for listening and look forward to the next Warner Archive Collection podcast.